I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Patrick O'Donnell has been a part of the Pharaoh and Ball team since 2012. As of 2018, he held the role of International Brand Ambassador, fostering relationships between Pharaoh and Ball and the designers who use its products to bring clients' homes to life. After completing A-levels in English, Fine Art, History of Art, and Classical History, he went on to pursue a career in specialist paint decoration, studying at the Leonard Pardon School in London. Having held roles across the creative industries, including those in film and television, floristry, and interior design, Patrick has since brought his considerable experience and impeccable eye for color and form to Pharaoh and Ball first as an expert color consultant and now as brand ambassador. With color, one obtains an energy that seems to stem from witchcraft, observed Henry Matisse. And with that, I'm welcoming the head sorcerer, Patrick O'Donnell, in my chair. Head sorcerer? I think I'm much more of the dark witch, but I'll give it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you agree with that quote? No, I think it's a really lovely quote. I mean, really lovely quote. I'm terrible. I, I'm really, you know, I love reading stuff and I re- read quite vociferously, but I'm absolutely hopeless at retaining stuff. You know, when you, you know, when you read a novel and there's like this most exquisite line in there, and then two days later you're like, what was that really beautiful line that really moved me? So yes, I'm hopeless, but yes, no, it's a lovely quote. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember what I ate for breakfast an hour yeah. ago, let alone anything I've I've read. That's part of my problem too. I remember um, to feed the dogs, and that's probably about it. Well, Carol always reminds me. She and I don't know how she knows that it's four fifty nine, and she's like on the dot, and she's like, "Hey, it's time." They you do know. have this kind of what is it that we have for sleeping? This circadian rhythm. They have like the equivalent for I think it's a Labrador thing as well, isn't it? Well, they aren't they obsessed with food? Unbelievable. I mean, it's bonkers. I, Carol is, I've because I had dogs growing up, but I've never had a dog be so, like, we can't be near the kitchen without, and you look over and you're always being watched. You know, yeah. it's heartbreaking because all I want to do is feed her. That was the way I was raised. You nurture people with food. And then, uh, you know, John Pierre's like, uh, no, she's going to become so fat, Quinn. It's bad for her health, you know. So that's why she has the, that lean, trim body of hers. Not well, we're for quite me. Fun- no, I know. Well, no, our girls are in quite good shape. And it's quite funny. I was out on the walk with them the other day. And um, this woman who actually had another black lab, uh, you know, really lovely dog, looked quite ancient. And I was talking about our girls and you know, sort of taking it easy with them. And, um, and she said, oh, well, how old are they? And I went 12. And she went, oh, my God. And I went, yeah, no, they're quite good. They've you know got a tiny little bit of grey on their muzzle, but they're in pretty good shape. And I go, how old was yours? And she went ten. And literally, their dog looked about fifty-seven years older than our two. I, <laughs> I felt really guilty. I was like, I'm so sorry. And Carol would like to point out that the British labs are shorter and fatter. They are she definitely. Would, she shorter. really wanted to get that in. No, no, no. I think it's a really good point. Our two are working dogs, so they are shorter in the leg. Um, rather than sort of the the bulkier, beefier labs. And then it's opposite for Americans. Right. 
<laughs> I joke. Um, I'm not. I'm not going there. Not you're not going there. Like no. <laughs> I'll be not... self-deprecating, and then you can be self-deprecating. It'll be quite okay. British. Yeah. I um. So I said a little bit in your title or your intro, rather. But what is your job really at Ferrum Ball? And can you tell us what your kind of day to day is like? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been quite weird. So obviously, the last two years with COVID, because I'm normally traveling quite a lot i'd be sort of traveling you know, a couple of times a month you know whether that's just in uk or europe or the us and stuff um so that was really weird so my job suddenly became slightly desk orientated and and for, i had to be quite creative for the first few months um with the desk stuff and that's where the social media you know the uh, the Farnball social media and me doing videos came about but also i was uh, helping other departments in you know, with in that first tranche of covid so it became kind of really sort of just mucking in but normal day to day as we're getting back to kind of a normality i i'm at my desk i'm doing emails i'm in my study now talking to you in what in working hours um how rude and um, <laughs> the, and then I I will be sort of phoning, emailing kind of designers. I'll be dealing with clients. I do I do, do color consultancy. I'm not officially bookable as a color consultant, but I tend to do VIP consultancy for the marketing team in the US and the UK. Um, so kind of more discreet celebrities and stuff and influencers and that kind Ooh. of thing so marketing p you know it's more pr that side of it um i will be going to the odd party which is always really spoiling um we just do we just had something in london last week um which is really great it's the first time we've really done it called the wow house at um the design center in chelsea harbor which is kind of a huge hub of all the big fabric houses and furniture houses under one roof and they've done kind of a kips bay experience right um and it's beautiful you know really really top high-end designers yeah and it looks exquisite the craftsmanship is really good so i was at that last week and then the rug company had their anniversary so the social site is really really nice um he says in a really shallow vacuous way um and then traveling so i'm off to sweden um next tuesday and then i'm off to the netherlands the following week um just kind of meeting stockists and agents and designers. So you really are have a public, you're kind of the public face of I, the brand. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's me and then there's Joa who creates the colors with our head of creative Charlie. We're kind of the sort of the public face ambassador. So I'll do loads of press quotes. So, you know, our PR company in, in the States will get me to do stuff for Martha Stewart Living or you know, house beautiful and stuff like that. And then I'll be doing the same for titles over here, like living, etc. El Deco, house and garden, period home. So yeah, I do lots of press quotes, you know, it's really funny because especially the digital stuff, you get really short leads. So our, the, our PR manager, Kat, is, she's terribly sweet. And she'll send me stuff over at kind of three o'clock in the afternoon and go, um, can you do a press quote? Like, yeah, 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 sure. And she's like, uh, yeah, end of day. So like two hours. To turn it around it's quite simple just the history of paint from beginning of time to the rocks yeah. and and minerals to now and yes, what you exactly. see in the future yeah right so um so it's kind of fun no it's, it's fun you know it, it's a, it's really good and it, i'm really lucky because it is quite a varied role and it's you know it, i'm obviously quite a lot of responsibility being 
an ambassador for a brand. And I'm terrible because I am slightly, you know, unintentionally faux pari and um, have minor Tourette's. So um, I, I <laughs> well, you came to, to the sure. right place. Well, yeah, I know. So yeah, it's, it was, <laughs> it's, an, it's hilarious. I always let somebody down, but uh, yeah, it's all in good humor. Do you think anyone else on the planet has a job like yours? Um, I'm sure they do. I'm, I'm, I'm sh- yeah, I don't, well, I don't know. I'm assuming. It's I'm assuming. so niche. It's a really, yes, it's really weird because you kind of go, you know, sort of transferable skills, you know, if I, if I, you know, should I want to move or go off somewhere else? Like, how do I describe my job? Because people are going to go, that's a bit flaky. I don't really know what you do. But, um, I mean, obviously, the nice thing is the feedback's really good when we post stuff, you know, material that I've created for Farrenball, for the social, you know, for Instagram or Facebook. You know, it resonates really, really well. So I think it's, it, I have a slight common touch. Uh, well, that's okay. Two things is one that during the pandemic, it was so dark. And I personally, I just was so felt so helpless and defeated. And your daily dose of color was a ray of light for me. Not like, you know, to be overly dramatic, but it was just some little thing in my day that, you know, my mom would say, oh, Patrick's got a good thing on green kitchens, you know, and then I'd log in and look at it. And in some very small way, I just really was one of the like things that I could actually look forward to during a time that I I didn't look forward to much. So well, thank really you for that. It's really interesting because we were, we were amazed. I mean, Hannah, who is our social manager, when we're talking about what do we do and you know it's really important for me that, that it came across in a really light approachable way and it didn't feel at all sales driven it was literally tips and what to do it wasn't like going to go and buy our paint and obviously we want people to buy our paint otherwise there's no point being here but you know i just wanted the messaging to be much softer and more kind of egalitarian and kind of friendly and I hope right. that came across. I mean, it seemed to work for a lot of people. I mean, you know, it's really, it, it's, it was lovely, the response we got. I, I did. And then the other thing is, like, reading your bio and everything, like, you, it seems like you must have been in school for 20 years. You're studying all these, you know, different eras of paint and decoration and interior design. And the next thing you know, you're talking about, you know, brilliant colors for, you know, an island versus, you know, the rest of the kitchen. Yeah. Is that daunting for you to figure out how to put all of your expertise and kind of you know elite knowledge into a very simple way that a consumer can relate to it um no not really because it shouldn't it shouldn't be complicated i mean i i mean it's quite interesting because and i know you and i've discussed this in the past i um it's it's being you know it's taking away my personal preferences and sometimes I'll put colours in I love, but you know I've got to be commercial and um, you know not everybody likes will like my palette or certainly not like my taste which is mildly eclectic to say the least. Um, no, I find it really really easy and also it makes it really easy because we have a pretty edited palette. So it's not overwhelming. You know, when you go to kind of decorating merchants, um, they have a huge wall of these slip cards with like six colors on, but there's about a thousand of these slip cards and you're like, I don't know where to start. So I, I think the key is I always so try overwhelming. edit in a really simple, approachable way. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yes, that is from experience. I think I've always been drawn to design. But the educational thing, that's kind of essentially a sore point in my home because my parents just thought I was the biggest flake because I took, I think I was about um, 42 when I grew up. So, oh, <laughs> like last year. And then some, but that's very kind. <laughs> um, but it was, it was yeah, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that my talents always lay in some would be in something creative i mean my favorite experience at school or my favorite place my safe space at school was the art room um and i used to just love being there drawing sketching painting um doing silly things trying new stuff and that was always fun and then you know and then history of art was a huge thing for me too and english literature so books kind of another kind of escape when you're a kid in the UK, are you allowed to be different and le- and kind of celebrated and left alone? Or because in America, there's like, at least, you know, for me, there there was always like, this is status quo. These are the, the cool kids. This is what's expected of you. A guy should know how to throw a baseball. And if you weren't that, like, you know, you could be bullied, you would be fringe. And it was difficult. Well, but I don't know if other countries have that kind of, of mentality. I think we live in, I'm, I'm not, it's really not perfect at all. I think we live in a much better, more tolerant society now. I, I, I think I was very lucky. So I was at school. So my kind of informative year, so I finished my school at 18 in 1986. Um, so, and I had, I, did I love school? I don't think I particularly loved it, but that's because I, I went to a, you don't call them public schools, you, you call them private schools in Mm -hmm. the u.s so i went to a minor private school uh boys school and yeah and i I really enjoyed it i had good friends there and it was yeah i had some really lovely teachers really inspirational teachers but a lot of my experience there i'm not saying is unhappy it wasn't unhappy that'd be too melodramatic but i kind of didn't fit because it was very academically driven my school but, you know, it's kind of the irony, even though your parents are paying for the privilege of your education, the school wasn't particularly interested if they didn't think you were a student who was going to get into Oxbridge or the Russell League, which is kind of the equivalent of your Ivy League. So there was mm-hmm. definitely a focus on kind of the best performers um, rather than, well, he's more interesting. He's a bit more nuanced. Like we're a bit confused. We don't know what to do with him. Um, let him just play in the art studio and let him sit in the corner and read poetry um so I'm, I'm not saying i was some foppish romantic in kind of an oscar Wilde way at all right I, I really wasn't but um but i certainly didn't have an unhappy experience you know my god i played rugby for the second team you know i did do sport apart from cricket which i really hated um but you know yeah i mean, it's quite sporty so i kind of conformed to some of the norms of that experience um but yes i was i was definitely one who wore weird clothes you know, not in any. You know, I wasn't like a goth or anything, but I remember being, I love loving clothes, and I'd went, been to stay with kind of friends of friends, family in San Remo in Italy when I was kind of thirteen, and I discovered Fiorucci, and I came <laughs> back with this kind of acid green shirt and these amazing baggy jeans, which were a thing in nineteen eighty two or whenever, and um, like early stonewash. They weren't. No, I never did stonewash. Actually, we never did stonewash over here. Well, it, <laughs> it happened, but I wasn't part of that movement. 
Thank God. Thank God I can hold my head up high about something. I never wore, <laughs> I never wore stonewashed jeans in my life. That um, Veron Ball should add that to your title. Having never worn stonewashed jeans, he went on to pursue a career in the arts. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, and it, but it was kind of weird. So, yes, I went, I, I finished school perfectly happy. Um, then did an art foundation course, which is kind of before you go to art college, and then realized I, I wasn't interesting enough to be an artist um, or pretentious enough to be an artist. That's really harsh. Uh, but I, I just didn't get it. So I kind of redid my A-level, a couple of A-levels. Um, Let me ask you something, because I know that you yeah. mentioned you have a partner and everything. Yeah. What was it like? Well, I don't even know if you – if you knew you were gay growing up, did you know? And what was that like in the I, UK I, when, at that time? I kind of did and I didn't. So I kind of thought, hmm. I, I wasn't lusting after people or anything. It was kind of much more, hmm, I don't fit in. I, mean, I, you know, I went through the whole process of having girlfriends. And, um, oh. Yeah, I know, really weird. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I came out at 22. Um, but, I mean... I don't know. Maybe those are my differences at the time. And I didn't, because I wasn't in an environment with other gay people. I had nobody to share that with. And, uh, and was it painful, though? Like the coming out process or any I, of that? Well, it was. Well, no, it's kind of, what, it wasn't actually. It was kind of, it was, it was really cathartic and everybody was amazing. Um, um, my, actually, t- the, the huge surprise my father was a really beautiful person. But he was just extraordinary. And, you know, he's old school. You know, he was born in 1928. And, and he was just amazing. And he said, I, all I want is for you to be happy. And, and, and which is really touching. And you yeah. know, there was no kind of backlash or anything. I think my mother probably found it more difficult. I mean, even now, if, you know, you can see her slightly wince when there's a gay character on TV. <laughs> Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And my, my partner and I, if we we're in, if we were watching anything with her and there's this kind of remote, we, we just start to sort of just cringe and flinch because you. Oh know my God. One time we were watching <laughs> Margaret Cho's stand up with my grandparents after like a holiday meal and she started talking about going down on some girl or something. And we were just, just like, everybody looked around. And my grandma was just like, oh, I don't think this is very funny. Do you? <laughs> and we were like, yes. And we were just in tears laughing about it. it was so funny. But yeah, hilarious. sorry. Um, so did you have to learn like at 22, this is so like not PC, but kind of like, you're like, okay, I'm coming out now. What is the gay community? What is the culture? Like, you know, did you have, did you want to figure anything out about? Because I imagine you probably were in London and, and had this whole universe that was new to you. Well, that, no, actually at that time I was um, up in the Midlands still. So I, I um, had a house in Birmingham. Okay. So Um, the, the London of, of the Midlands, the London of the Midlands, but it was really, (laughs) it was really provincial and it just made me slightly sad. It was so sort of grim, but I mean, I used to go to London. Yeah. Most of my friends, you know, then and even now are heterosexual um, oh. yeah and that's not through choice it's just you know a lot of my friends are friends from you know my teenage years um so but yes i mean i've got a few gay friends i i find the scene the gay scene or in london i find it quite shallow i mean it's great fun don't get me wrong um 
and I've had some excellent fun nights clubbing um, in the in the good old days. But it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. No, and you yeah, know, I, I'm a boring bugger who lives with his partner, and weirdly at my mother's house at the moment because we moved back from Ireland just over a year ago uh, with two clearly fat Labradors. Um, so, <laughs> Carol. yeah so yeah we are you know we live quite a sedentary life so yeah my job is probably more visually um, sort of socially stimulating than my personal life but i'm very happy and we lived in the middle of nowhere in ireland god we didn't see anybody and we're right in the sticks the only gay in the village we were the only gays in the village (laughs) do you find that the oat design community to be quite shallow uh, you see, I'm I'm, I'm uh, putting in some French there for for those. Yeah, you are. Um, mm. I don't know if it's Charlotte. I think I think like any creative um, setup, th- there's there's the in crowd, and then there's peripheral people like me, um, or there are people who really want to be part of the in crowd. Um, right. I, I I just kind of do my job. I love my job. I meet lots of really wonderful people. And I've met some truly wonderful people in the design community and really, really lovely people. Um, Yeah, I mean, there are people who are takers, uh, people who want to be part of the clique, um, and then slight outsiders like me who who just get on with their job and then go back to their slightly dull pedestrian life after it. It's good you need Uh, that break. I can't I can't live it. I can't work it and live it. But you have to find your own authentic way to deal with it or to maneuver within it for what you do. Yeah, I mean we my partner came with me because um, my partner's just taken up um kind of needlework, Bargello stitch and um it was really lovely. So Emma Burns who's uh design director for Sybil Colfax and John Fowler, which is the decorating wing of Colfax. <clears throat> yeah, really old company. I mean, you know, sort of the stalwarts of interior decorating. A bit like quintessential British yeah. design. Right. Well well yeah, I mean they're known for that. I think they're much their their portfolio is much broader than that now. You know, they've got some really amazing designers doing really interesting stuff, which isn't probably atypical of what you'd think Sybil Colfax is. But Emma very kindly commissioned Paul from my partner two cushions for the what her the show her room at the wow house uh last week so we went up and paul you know that's a completely alien world to paul and um he just said it's just really interesting watching you just work the room and seeing people i mean i just maybe there's just a switch that suddenly you're in an environment and you just create this turn it on you just turn it on, don't you? I mean, you're not even aware you're doing it, but he's just. But it's just a testament so to you that you don't bring it home. I mean, it's like you, you, you can do that. I mean, if you were like that at home, it would be really annoying. I'm sure for it would be fucking exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, completely exhausting. I mean, God, who'd want to live with that? Um, at Rare Pierre, which is also my partner. Um, wants to know what is up with the paint color names at Ferron Ball specifically, but also in, in general paint color names are always a bit like, you know, they can go from cringe to kind of howling laughter, but, but what is the deal? 
Um, well, I, I mean, as I know, I know some people kind of laugh at us, um, or some of them, or, or think they're really curious. And there are, you know, there's obviously the classic that everybody quotes, like Elephant's Breath. And actually, we can't take credit for that. And that, that actually is another Sybil Colfax um, story. So I and the anecdote slightly changes, but my version that I've heard is John Fowler, who Sybil Colfax and John Fowler, created this colour in possibly the 50s, possibly the 60s. You can see how vague my response is. And Nancy Lancaster, a Virginian, who bought Sybil Colfax and John Fowler, walked into the room and made some comment about it's ghastly and it looks like elephant's breath, you know, and her kind of insulting slur. And then it stuck. And um, and we inherited some of the colours, some of the John Fowler colours, because we worked with a historic association um, many years ago in the 1990s. And so we did a lot of, um, we had access to some really beautiful sort of archive colours from historic buildings around Britain. So a lot of our names come from that. So there's a lot of historical reference in our names. And then I, I just think we've become known for it. So, But they're all quite pertinent in their own way. And some of them are just plain obvious, you know. But, um, but yes, I think, and I don't know whether it's on the back of us, but I think there's definitely suddenly became a competition as more and more kind of high-end paints came onto the market. It was like suddenly everybody's shtick to be quirky and in some cases absolutely bonkers. Um, Doesn't it also add some mystique to the color? Like you could call it purple or, you, you know, you could call it aubergine or what, you know, that's not even a good example, but it, it's for an American that sounds so much more sophisticated. Well, especially aubergine, because you probably everybody in America goes, what the hell is an aubergine? And you go, it's this, ah, oh, eggplant. Um so it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, there is a mystique, but I think you, you, you don't want to patronize people and you don't want to make things really difficult. And we've got a blue that is, because we have lots of strange colloquialisms in the English language, there's a place in Norfolk that's spelt Stifke, uh, but it's locally pronounced as Stuky. But obviously, you know, a lot of people, if they come into a showroom or ask for it, they talk about Stifke Blue. And the last thing you want to do is be patronizing and change their pronunciation because that's how it's written. So, you know, I think there's a danger of being but too clever. But it's But yeah, but nobody, you know, but you're honest. Rhymes you, you with... want people to be able to bloody pronounce the name they're buying or not, or certainly not make them feel stupid. I always thought it was a good technique to kind of pull people's preconceived notions about a color away. So like, if I'm somebody who I'm like, I hate pink, I would never buy, uh, I would never want pink paint. And someone said, oh, but we have this color called setting plaster. Yeah. Suddenly I'm not looking at it like a pink. It's, it's setting plaster. Yeah. It's the best. You should be using that. It's not not saying you need it, but it's one of the really flattering colors to make you glow and look really healthy. So you should be making up all your artists in a setting plaster room. Setting plaster. You know, there is a technique where you work. If I work with a lady who's of a certain age or someone extremely pale and there's a certain pallid or you know, sallowness to the skin. Yeah. You could take something slightly pink and peach in, in, in a very translucent manner. And after you've done the skin, kind of put it on the edges of the face to give it a little pick me up. Okay. 
Without changing the tone of their skin, you're using this kind of color to just bring a little bit of light to it. So when I'm looking think really it's... pallid, if I use a watered-down sample pot of setting plaster and slap it all on, I'm going to look... That's exactly gorgeous. right. I'm That's exactly fabulous. right. Okay. Um, and lead paint preferred. Excellent. Love it. Love it. You know, I want to ask you about greenwashing because... I don't in makeup. It's like, oh my, everything's green, everything's this and that. And at the end of the day, you're like, I don't even know if any of this really matters. It's like, is it marketing? Is it that? Do you think that the paint industry has gone too far towards the no VOCs, organic paint, and then you end up getting shittier paint? Like maybe we all want a little bit of lead back in our paint. Well, I mean, I know not really. No, I know. Um, but I mean, I know when we switched to water-based paint in 2010, uh, the primary reason for doing that is we, um, the EU legislation at the time was going to kind of take away a lot of um, chemicals that were in paint and especially oil-based paint. So we just kind of went ahead of the curve. Um, but I know a lot of decorators or painters, as um, they're called in the US, um, love oil-based paint. You know, because it, it does go on beautifully, but actually, you know, we've had 12 years of developing water-based paint. Um, but is there greenwashing? I think there is. I think we're all endeavouring to do as much as we can while in a manufacturing industry, w- which is difficult. So the VOCs is really important. It's easy to kind of sniff at it. But, you know, I mean, the whole VOC thing is really important. And we, because we sell globally and, um, and obviously, Ca- California, we have five showrooms and obviously have retailers there too. You know, And they're the strictest. They have such strict regulations. So, you know, they keep you on your toes. So, um, you know, the regulations change a lot. So I'd say California is a, is a really interesting benchmark for us and how we perceive our paint and look at our paint and how it's made up. So um, I, I, I don't want to say whether there's greenwashing or not. Um, I, I just kind of think some people, we're just trying to do the best we can do uh, without making any grand statement that we're saving the world. Right. Um, how does the paint actually like get made? Do you guys sit down and go, okay, this is our 32, you have 132 colors in the current yeah. collection and then you have an archive. Yeah. You're going, what's a trend? What trend is coming up? What are we missing? And then once you figure that out, I love a nine part question. How do you actually like scientifically make the color? Well, so, so some of those things you mentioned, so sort of trends, what's selling, what's not. And then we have quite a, a a nuanced paint guide. I mean, you don't really come to Farnball for really bright, clean colours. You know, we have a, quite a specific Farnball look. Um, so, there, you know, if suddenly like really hot oranges and hot magentas and pinks are in, we're we're probably not going to be playing ball with that. Um, but obviously, we will look at bestsellers and kind of okay, could we fit? A color in between like a you know a shade of a shade scale of these two colors we could definitely squeeze something in and then we just kind of look around you know there will be inspiration from travel so the colors are made up with joa studham uh color curator and um, and she will work with charlie our head of creative on all the new collections and 
Do you get to chime in? Um, yeah, um, I do. And I, I, I'm never there in the development of them. But, I mean, Charlie will always go, what are you seeing around? What are you seeing kind of coming out? Uh, and then I'm always getting it hopelessly wrong because I'm always going, yellows are going to come back. And then I love brown. So um, so I'm always saying stuff that never actually happens or never, ever, ever has kind of a renaissance. So I'm the worst person. Um, so, yes, I, I do help, but I don't develop the colors. Would you ever look at a color and say to them, you know, I think you need to rework this. It's a little too blue. No, I wouldn't. No, no, no. Because I'm no. Joe, Joe and Charlie are brilliant. And I no, that'd be too undermining. That's stepping on people's toes. So um, you don't actually make the. You're not involved in the actually like mixing the paint sample to get that perfect hue. No, I mean what I do do with some of uh, my clients, um, especially some of the designers, is I will work with them to create bespoke colors, which are not available generally but I, you know i have made bespoke colors so i will work with designers on that and i then will i will work with them with our color lab i will often play with stuff and try and make a color which i think is a near approximation then go to dom who is an amazing guy in our color lab at head office and kind of play with him and go oh, i want this but i think it needs to be a bit more milky here and i think we need to dial down the blue in this and <clears throat> and then he will do drawdown cards of different samples and then i'll just present those back to the client and go which one's your favorite um, and then how would he be able to recreate that based on his well then he would use something called uh, well, i think it's called a spectrophotometer um he would he he will have a formulation of how he made that paint so if there is one there that's fine <clears throat> but then he will put it into that he's kind of rather brilliant genius machine um, and just make sure it's kind of testing you know, on different areas. I'm not really technical. I just know what I like and what I don't like and what I want and what I don't want. Um, but, I mean, going back to Joe and Charlie creating new colours whenever they come up with um, new collections is literally sitting at a kitchen table with loads of ramekins and loads of different paint samples and mixing. So it's kind of really – it's kind of – rather charmingly crude at the beginning and then it will go back to the lab and then they'll play around with it a bit more and it's not that kind of simple thing so you don't just have the color well you do but actually you have to kind of slightly reformulate for all the different finishes so um oh yeah so it's not like this is the pigment we'll just shove that into the estate eggshell and the estate emulsion into the gloss paint you know you have to kind of tweak and reformulate and so what you're saying is railings in an estate emulsion which is for people listening is extremely matte and in a high gloss might not be the same ratio of pigments that, no, it will be. So it'll be the, the, the construction. Be I, I don't want to talk too much because I don't want. You to, heard it here first, folks. Well, I know. I don't. I know exactly. So I get sort of should 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 the, the chemist at head office be listening and go? He is talking utter shite. So yeah, you just stir it about and then add some more flour and a bit of butter and then some sugar and then they wham bam. Right. You've got your lovely color. So no, they will be the, they will be exactly the same color. So there is. But it was just there will be different levels of other ingredients in there. So I see. So the, the, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. So the, the you, colors do not change. The appearance will because obviously different sheen levels, but the colors do not change. That's it. It's really interesting to see the same color in different sheens, and 
I'm fascinated between just for myself being a makeup artist and how I view color on a woman or man, you know, and then looking at color through your lens of, you know, paint and seeing like, where do they overlap? What is a neutral on a human being versus a neutral in a living room? And and, and it's all color. And it's quite interesting you talk about neutrals because I kind of think the neutral, I think our understanding of neutrals is really broaden so you mentioned setting plaster earlier and i often think as that is a neutral you know now i think there's a lot of kind of sort of paler colors that essentially are neutrals they're just kind of a neutral pale green or a neutral pale blue or a neutral pale earthy pink you know i think people always kind of go there are whites and then there are not quite whites which are neutrals but they all have underlying color characteristics so um right so i think i just mean you much more accepting about neutrals being much broader than whites and off whites you know in in makeup everything is based on i mean a lot of color is based on the coloring of of human beings right so if you have let's say 95 percent of the population has more yellow in their skin tone than pink something that would sway unless you're Irish, something would sway more yellow based <laughs> would, would be more neutral in terms of a foundation. It would be right, more neutral in terms of a taupe <clears throat> eyeshadow. Right? right. But in terms of what you do, a lot of times you guys will call like a red based neutral, a neutral. And I would, yeah. in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, you know, that's not neutral. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe it's just, um, <clears throat> language isn't it nuance of language um exactly but we also do i mean it, it, it definitely makes it easier to shop if we kind of go this is your neutral family which you know another way of looking at are your building blocks so we've kind of created all these neutral families for people to use or use as a starting point and then bring in other colors to accent or to complement so, um, you know, I, th- I think that there's a, probably a level of marketing too, just because it's consumer friendly <clears throat> and it helps people right. make decisions easier. So there's two things that I, my amateur mind observed that I think Farron Ball does exceptionally You're not an amateur, well. stop underselling. Cause I'm an amateur. You're really good with color as well. I mean, you've got a good, well, and, and, you have to, you do. know, it's part of your job too. It is a part of my job. Yeah. Two things that Pharaoh and Ball mastered and I think set the tone of the entire industry. One is that the colors are knocked, as you would say, knocked back yeah. the amount of gray. So when you say gray, you're not necessarily thinking of a charcoal bluish gray tone, but it's yeah. the amount that, that, that it's not a primary, that the colors are moody and muddy because they've been desaturated. Yeah, That's one thing. And if more cosmetic companies did that for skin tones, um, there would be a lot better foundations on the market. Oh, do you think- you know, if they come out with a hundred foundations, usually two of them are actually skin-like. And the reason is because the cosmetic industry doesn't use artists to develop the colors often or artists who understand color right. theory. So they're, they don't, they don't have enough gray in them. Anyway, that's a side point. The right. second thing that Pharaoh and Ball does so well is that, and this is what I'm, I'm curious about is, you're often talking about color swaying to the warmer side. So even if you guys have what looks to be something quite blue, it's kind of swaying on the greener side. Or if you had a pink, it's kind of swaying towards the yellow. 
And it's that warmth of the color that I find, or am I making all of this up? It's that, it's that sway. Like if I have a pink lipstick that has too much blue in it, it's just cold and unattractive to the human eye. And we don't know why, but we can recognize it. And I feel like that there's something about the colors that you guys create that also follows that pattern. Yeah. I I suppose I've never really thought about that. Um, I I think that might go back to all the kind of the, we don't do many, many clean, cool colors you know, that slightly more muddiness to our colours, which I think inherently gives them a, a certain level of warmth. But I mean, I mean, there are a few colours on there, going back to that kind of bluey pink, you know, we've got uh, Cinder Rose, um, and then Calamine is kind of like a cool grey, but I suppose there's a bit of warmth in that. But yeah, I mean, we, there's a lot of earthiness through our palette. Um, and we don't have, yeah, we don't have a lot of those clean colours. So even a lot of our blues will have kind of a dollop of green through them you know different levels that from because what does that do it just gives them a little bit warmth. it stops that chilliness that kind of iciness you often get with blue right but like even yellows which are you know inherently you know, most people perceive as warm tones I mean, they can be really cold because they be they can be quite blackened and and quite frosty and because you want those really sort of umphy sort of richer yellows it's a little more ochres and caramels you know which are really warming so i mean every color can be quite chilly i mean even reds you know some of the reds can be really chilly can't they so so when you're looking at a color i often think too it it can be a genius color but uh, but put in the wrong space yeah right so it's it's not that it's not a great color it's just used incorrectly yeah how do you how do you, when you're when you're looking at a space, determine if the color is right for that particular room? Well, it's quite interesting because I was with a client pre-Christmas, and actually they've gone ahead with against my advice and gone for a different blue in their sitting room. And I was really nervous. I mean, I have to say I've seen photographs of it, and it's photographing really, really well, but. I just thought it was a north-facing room and the blue was too cold for it. But actually, it's fine. They wanted it and they've committed to it. Actually, it looks really nice because she's got loads of really lovely caramel tones, which kind you know, in furnishings and stuff and accessories and lots of great pictures on the wall. And it's actually really softened it. <clears throat> but I, I just kind of think of the space. So there are so many elements. I'm not just going in and choosing colors i'm kind of looking at the fabrics i'm looking at the flooring i'm even looking at what the client's wearing are they going to be happy with this probably not you know they're wearing wearing meaning you're sizing up the client as a whole person i'm sizing up the client i'm sizing up their environment i'm sizing up their artwork i mean but i mean there will be obviously elements that you can control so you know is the lighting good in there is it really harsh down light is there lots of lovely table lamps are there wall lights you know they're lovely sort of picture lights over the art you know those will all have a huge impact you know and then obviously the the natural light direction and i know we talk about north south east and west and you know not every south facing room you know is going to be flooded with light yes it's a nicer light but you might live in a tiny cottage with you know the windows might have a really tiny aperture and you might have loads of beautiful wisteria at the front taking the light away so you know everything we say is kind of and a, a guideline, kind of an assistance tool, but nothing is set in stone. And I always, I mean, I break the rules. I'm sitting in my study, which is northwest facing, which is kind of pretty crappy light. 
and I've got a really, really dark green on the walls. And I kind of love it because it's a small room and actually you know, it's poorly lit, but it works. And actually all I've done here is just kind of create this, make the space feel more intimate. It was cream, but it felt really chilly, bizarrely, for a cream room. And now it just feels really cosy and I like being in here. I hated being in here before. So, I mean, that's the lovely power of colour is kind of creating different environments that make you feel better. That's the most important thing to me is somebody being really happy in their, in their room, in their space. But how would you know you have the idea, I'm going to take this to a green in this study. How would you know that you're not going to do, I mean, every, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you start painting half a wall and you're like, this is horrible. <laughs> That's the uh, fear of every, that people have, you know? Yeah. I don't, I, yeah. I mean, What's a bit of a risk here? And I'm a really terrible, I hate decorating. I'm a really lazy painter. Uh, and I'm one of those people that will paint a wall and then push the furniture back and rehang the art and then go on to the next wall because I'm so impatient <laughs> about clearing out a room. So I am dressing while the paint is drying. I mean, I am terrible. And I have a really great friend who's a really great interior decorator as well. And she's exactly the same. And um, We just giggle about how bad we are. But then... I can't bear it. I need to put things up and dress it really quickly. I can't live in chaos or the idea of a room being disturbed for three or four days and not everything being put back. My partner, Paul, hates it because he, he, I can't bear empty surfaces. Your house is quite clean and disciplined, isn't it? Um, yes and no. I, I, the, the thing for me about, you know, I have this house in Southampton and left to my own devices, I would probably prefer to, to have a, you know, money's no object, paint a townhouse and really use color and, and, um, you know, have, uh, have more fun with it and use a more depth of color, but it doesn't work in the Hamptons. It yeah. ends up looking out of place and like you're at a, at an event overdressed. So right. I'm always trying to push that limit of, how can I use color in this space, but also uh, not have it look antithetical to the environment? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is less cluttered than I think like the British aesthetic has a lot of things going on, which they do so masterfully. Like they'll put pattern and texture and print and, you know, which everything heaven. together. Heaven. Uh, yeah. I think. How do have, you we- do that without it looking just like, like totally disturbing to the I eye. I think you, one, you don't really think about it. And two, quite often those rooms have been layered and organically formed over decades. So you just add right. more and more shit as you get, you get older. And and I all I think English rooms or British rooms, but especially English, they they tell a story. Um, they're very much about the soul of the house and the people that live in it or the person that lives in it. Because I always find it quite interesting with American decorators. American American decorating, interior decorating, I think is much more polished and done. Where, well, everything's um, a teardown and start from scratch. Yeah, I mean, everything's beautiful. I mean, God, I mean, I, I'm kind of in awe of There's quite a few American designers that just get me really excited at the moment. Um but I just, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
thank God I'm British because like it, it, it's really nice to be slightly slovenly. I think we have a kind of relaxed, a comfortable slovenliness. Um, slatten is a word that you could use for me. Slatten. Slatten. But what would what would the nouveau riche um, British thing be? Um, I don't know. The, I think it would look like the Crosby Hotel. God, am I know, being or, a real bitch here? There's, there, there are these developers in London called Candy and Candy, and they do this slightly really horrible, you know, that kind of dark wood and slightly sort of oystery cream everything. And it's, uh-huh. it's so a nasty, nasty like a hotel. Chandeliers. It's foul. It's really ugly. So the cause that's that's Kit Camp, isn't it? Is the Cosby Kit Camp? Yeah. So that's not. I wouldn't say that's very nouveau riche over here. It's quite neutral. It's kind of dark woods and cream and beige, and like a hotel suite at it, the Creon or it's something. So when they redid it, yawny and hideous. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But that's for me. That's that's my opinion, which counts for nothing. Um, but it's, it, it, it's, there's no personality there. There's nothing to get you excited. It's just, it's money, isn't it? That's all it is. It's just, it's just to show that you have money. Yeah. Uh, But it also always looks dated. Like though it's like, even like modern homes, the box homes that are really popular with like, you know, new money. It's like after 10, 15 years, we all know what the one, the modern homes in the eighties look like now. Like they don't age well. Well, that's I mean, so, that's the same thing here, though. That's terrible. I mean, architecture in this country has just been really shocking from kind of the post-war years. Has been really awful. There's it's a really low common denominator. We're talking about this. We're talking about social housing. My partner and I the other day, and um, you wonder why working class people are angry because the state or housing trust put them in god awful accommodation with no respect for the individual. And it's, it's really sad. It's really appalling. Yeah, it, I, it drives me potty. And then new housing estates. You just drive through these horrible pastiches of, I don't even know what. I mean, the... I think you got that from America, though, the housing so development. so schizophrenic. And it's just so awful. Yeah. There's well, no what I love about what the Brits do is actually take something... I think the chicest thing you can do is take something very old keep the integrity of it and put as much kind of, of modern conveniences as that's not naff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like maybe not heated floors, but maybe a bathroom that has, you know, a rain shower, like you, that finding that balance of like, okay, this is needed and and new, but we're, we're not going to upset the integrity of the home. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, now that you and I have solved all of the design problems of the world, um, <laughs> I don't think we have. I think we've just been sort of rather spiteful about other people's perception of what's nice. Yeah, spiteful's my my specialty. Okay. I'm also kind of really over mid century modern. I mean, I, I I like certain pieces of it, but there was a time that it just felt like everything was was so was mid century modern. You know, at least here. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I was watching Borgen. I don't know if you watch Netflix at all. But Borgen was a series I was completely addicted to sort of eight or nine years ago. And Netflix have just reissued it. And actually, I, I was slightly lusting after some of the interiors because there's obviously more money behind the production. And I have to say, some of that Danish furniture is so beautiful and so well designed. I was slightly going, 
why do I always get a bit sniffy about that? But I think you're probably right. It became slightly hackneyed and reproduced and lost its its truth. But when you right. see it in an authentic environment, it, 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 they are, there are lots of elements of great beauty and beautiful design, you know, really functional. I mean, that's, that's such a lovely thing, isn't it? That absolute function and form and aesthetic balance. You know, it, it's a hard thing to pull off. I, I don't know if you know this and you probably do about how scared people are of paint and color. Really? Why? Yeah. I, I just redid my kitchen and I did the powder room and I have to say the thing that I worry and, about and still obsessed over is the color from very beginning to the very end. It just seems like that thing that it's really hard to trust your instincts. It's hard to know if you're going to like that color in five years. It's an investment in time and money. And it's so emotional. Like when you walk into a room and you feel a color, even if it's a, a green gr- off white green, it it has a, a connection to, to, at least for me that, I, I find it terrifying. Do you see? I, yeah. See, that, see, that's really that's such an abstract thing. I know some people don't have confidence, but um, that's you know that's why we have loads of information on our website, and that's why we offer the color consultancy <laughs> service. But it's nothing to be really nervous about. And also, at the end of the day, I know kitchen cabinetry is more difficult because that's an expensive job to fix if you're not happy with the cupboard but for walls primarily if you really hate it and paint it over and that's why we always that's why sampling is really important i mean i i can't it always feels like oh it's an add-on sale or do buy sample it's like suede polish for your loafers it's not but sample pots are invaluable and if you sample correctly don't put loads of colors on a wall together get a really big sheet of paper and use the whole sample pot. So really, really massive kind of, I have to do it in feet and inches now, don't I? So like 48 inches by 36 inches, you know, kind of sheet of paper, do one coat, let it dry, do a second coat. So you've built up the depth of color and then hang that on different walls at different times a day. And then you'll see the color in responding in different lights and different aspects. And that's a really good way of seeing it. So the largest sample you can do will really, really help and never put paint 10 small kind of a4 samples on a wall next to each other because they will all kind of fight with one another in terms of context and right through the color is but it's, it's not complicated and there is lots of help out there you know like i said our website has so much information on it to access you know free of charge uh, and then if you want to spend a bit of money you can get a color consultant in to, to- i don't think it's that much money i can't believe everyone wouldn't do that to have think, somebody is it, is it in the states 250 dollars an hour yeah is and i think you get some of it back in paint it's so valuable to have yeah. somebody come in and go you know what try this try that you're gonna live with that color for hopefully you know at least five to seven years or more i mean it's really not that much money when you break it down to how well, it's much kind of the, the price of making it's kind of the price of a couple of gallons, isn't it? So, you know, rather than kind of going, buying two gallons of paint, putting it up and going, oh, God, I really hate it. I need to go and get some more. Then it kind of hopefully takes some of that stress out of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the best. I, I guess it's like a secret because whenever I tell people who don't know, I'm like, you should just hire a color consultant to come in and, and like help you out. It's really, really worth it. Yeah, it really is. 
You've um, you've used um, one of our papers in your powder room, haven't you? I think it's Mike Calloway. Have you used Off Black and Brinjal? I did. In Lotus, yeah. And never thought about it twice. That is in my harmony and that bathroom. I just knew that that's what I wanted and never doubted it. And then now when I go in there, it's a windowless powder room. You close the door and you feel like it's a little oasis. Yeah. For that I love moment. dark rooms. And I, dark rooms don't have to, you know, in small dark rooms can be things of great beauty. I think people are really nervous about dark rooms. But I always think, actually, <clears throat> that's a really good example of your powder room. If you would love to kind of be more brave and bold with color, and you do have a small powder room or a small cloakroom downstairs, that's the place to experiment because one, it's less surface area and easier to fix. But I mean, right? The yeah, knock your pan out in in a small space, and you'll learn to love it. It's just about you, building a confidence. Does everything have to have a cohesive feel throughout the house? So, like, if you're using, you know, um, war, let's say you're using schoolhouse white, which is yeah. a white with a green undertone to it. Yeah. Beautiful color. Um, and then you go upstairs and, and suddenly the, can you use cooler tone paint that, that maybe wouldn't sit well next to it, but in another area of the house? Yeah, of course you can. I, I kind of think, you know, I mean, some people like balance and harmony through a home. So, you know, one way of achieving that is using one color on trim throughout kind of unifying everywhere. Um, but I mean, God, I'm we're like I said, we're at my mother's at the moment, so we kind of jigged a few rooms here for us. So our bedroom, the guest bedroom, and the office, the study I'm in, and the bathroom, because they're kind of the spaces that we use. Um, well, I suppose that again, they kind of work because the my office is mint to green, which is a dark green. The guest bedroom is Etruscan red, which is like an oxblood dark red. And then my bedroom's another archive color. They're all archive colors here. Um, is um, cane, which is kind of a deep sort of dolce de leche kind of caramel browny yellow. Um, so they kind of all work, but they're really all really strong colors on their own right. Um, I suppose what would be really jarring if you went into a white room here, <laughs> be like, oh, that's weird. Didn't expect that because everything's quite strong. So I suppose there is a language, but I've been to, I mean, a friend of mine in Wales, who's an interior decorator, she's got this Kermit, we call it Kermit frog green in her dining room, but everywhere else is really calm and restful. And actually it doesn't jar at all. It just looks like this little jewel box. So I think you can have fun, but I mean, if you are nervous, then I think continuity and balance and playing with a family of colors. And again, that's where the neutral families become really useful um, because you can use, there are four colors in each neutral family. And then we will give you lots of advisory tonal colors that work with them. But no, I, 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 I think forget rules in decorating and just go with what you love. And don't, big thing for me, don't give a damn about what anybody else thinks. It's your home. Go with it. Don't worry about what your neighbor might think, you know, whether she's going to judge you. Right. Um, and don't I'm just more anyone. worried about what I might think, you know. But that's all right. It's um, your mistake. It is. So that's right. okay. Um, how do you – do you have a trick? I, I see designers who I sometimes – I'm in awe of their work um, that seem to – put many colors together and they're almost um, 
undetectable indifferent you know you don't notice it right away but then you're like oh my god this room has lilac and it has uh you know green and it has this and they're all layered in a way yeah. that's so beautiful is that because of the weight of the colors the, there will or is be there any kind of guide well i don't know it's really hard i always find that a really hard question to articulate coherently um because when we talk about weight, it's actually quite a hard thing to describe to somebody. I can show illustrate it with ten, you know, color boards. You know, look, these all have a similar weight, and this is the reason why. And then I think visually, it always makes sense. I, I, I think all those rooms you talk about with lots of different colors going on will probably be, correct me if I'm wrong, fully dressed rooms. So there will be, so it won't just be the colors necessarily responding to each other. It will be the pictures on the wall. It will be the furniture. It'll be the various fabrics, you know, and they will all be pulling and playing with each other in a really harmonious, flattering way. So I think, you know, room is a sum of many parts. And I always say this, and I always say this to clients, you know, just because we're putting nice paint colors in here, ain't necessarily going to make your room look lovely. You know, a room is a sum of so many parts. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying my office is nice at all. I quite like it. It's my space. I'm the only one who sits in here. But, I mean, I've got loads of shit going on in here. I've got old chintz curtains. I've got dark green walls. I've got an old Persian rug. I've got some shabby brown furniture. I've got these lovely hand-painted lamps from a friend of mine, Alvaro. Um, Loads of really eclectic art in here. I've got ceramics on the wall. I've got kind of tealy green tape going around the ceiling because i'm really bad at cutting in so i thought okay i won't go up to the ceiling i will paint just below and then stick a tape on it um uh, hold on i'm contacting the producers at hoarders you're, you're putting you up for the next episode <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's bonkers but it kind of all comes together in in my head it kind of comes together, and also is it fair to say that in terms of depth of color and material paint is the weakest Right, like if you're looking at a natural stone, wood, um, metals, um, in terms of depth of color, isn't that why paint is often the last thing you choose? Because you kind of want to go on the other elements that are more expensive and 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 uh, well, it's, giving more. Well, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think paint's often the one that's compromised, if that makes sense. Um, because obviously I work with some designers and I'm, I'm technically you know, working with, sorry, liaising with the top designers in the UK. <clears throat> so they'll be very adamant about if we've specified Far and Ball or another company, then the contractor has to buy that particular product. But then I think there's quite often a problem with more mid-weight designers who will put Far and Ball in or another brand in and quite often at the end of the money, the client is then going, you have spent an eye-watering amount of money. No way are we spending X on paint. You know, So it'll be kind of color matched at Sherwin Williams or whatever. Um, right. And you won't color match it properly. You'll get an approximation, but it won't be the color. And um, so, but Because why, so, why won't it be the color? Be, well, we don't work. There's a German system called RAL system, um, and we don't work with that. And you can get to a color and it's quite interesting talking to this so let's talk to um our head chemist um 
at Farron Ball. And I was kind of asking him to talk to me about metamorism. So metamorism is seeing color. The three colors can look the same in different in the same light, and then you put a different lighting environment on them. They're all completely different. Um, mm-hmm. And that's often the case with when you're color matching. You know, not just us with anybody. You're color matching because there are many routes to get to a similar color. So under certain lighting conditions, they'll look the same than others they'll look completely different. I mean, like Elephant's Breath, we tried it with some colour matching to see how it came up with competitors. And it's amazing how blue in lighting or really sharp lilac, some of those colours came out in different conditions. So, um, But colour is often the last thing that gets put into a room. But I know some designers who will have a colour in mind from the outset and that will dictate everything else that goes into the space. Hmm. A client might go, I love light blue. I have to have light blue. So then you'll, you know that room's going to be light blue, so you'll work around the scheme with light blue. It's Yeah, it's interesting that um, the color matching thing, I know as a makeup artist too, I, I would rather someone just pick a great color like from another brand than try to match it because I think that, like you were saying, like it's kind of like an impersonation of something great. Yeah, that you might as well just pick something that that brand does great on its own. Yeah, than trying to be second rate Pharaoh Ball color. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about like work. You work with a lot of designers and probably big personalities, and um, I imagine egos or people who have different aesthetic than you. How do you maneuver? with people in a situation that you find less than, than copacetic? Well, I never, br- I never bring my own aesthetic or personality into any dialogue because that's not why. Is that possible? Be- yeah. Yeah. I switch off. I, I bring my own personality when I do stuff for me and my partner and in our own spaces. I, it, it's like everything, whether you're working with designers, whether you're working with clients, you know, I'm there to serve them and I will just listen to them. I will give advice if I think we're going in the wrong direction, but I will never ever dictate and will never battle with anybody. No, that's Do you have people who are impossible to please? Uh, no, um, no, not really. No, it's quite interesting. I'm working with um, uh, actually a friend of mine um, on a project down in Wiltshire and he is, um, he's the most genius business person and hospitality chap I know, and he's got a lovely, loads of really wonderful pubs and restaurants, you know, ex Soho House. And we're kind of co doing a project together. And we are having the most hilarious husband and wife rows over stuff because if he had his way, everything would be plain. And I'm trying to bring him to the English fashion of layering with subtlety. Um, maturity and we had a huge stand-up row <laughs> but we didn't have a stand-up row we did have a huge squabble um almost throwing fabric swatches at each other in chelsea harbour last week um but no as a rule no i no i i just shrug my shoulders and get on with it so you never have any acrimonious moments in your work life no not really 
No. I have kind of crap days at the office, you know, when it's kind of just Well, what about – and you're, you haven't always worked at Pharaoh and Ball. Like when you were no. trying out other professions and things and you're dealing with a boss who is um, hard to please or you have a client who seems like it's really, you know, nothing you do is good enough. You've, yeah. You never experienced that in your, in your life. I ha- no, I have had that a few times. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what do you do in that situation? I'm really emotional. So I'm less so now. I'm 54, so I'm kind of more seasoned. I mean, I still get kind of over emotionally involved in projects, um, but I'm much I'm I'm much better or more equipped to shrug things off and going doesn't affect me. I go home. I have food on the table. I drink. I'm with people I love. All of that is just my job, and it was just a kind of a bad experience kind of day. Um, but yeah, I've had a couple of clients where it's been really really awkward. Um, but you know, it, it, it is, isn't it? Nothing smooth sailing all the time. It doesn't really get to me. I kind of hate thinking I failed or I've missed the brief or misunderstood a brief. I'm really bad. I do beat myself up. So I kind of take it out on myself more than anything. Mm-hmm. But you have a, the, I worked with a lot of Brits last summer. I did a film for the first time in my oh, life. You were in Greece, weren't you? I was in Greece. It was, a, yeah. it was the most incredible job ever, but everyone, uh, with a few exceptions, was British. All the hair and makeup and the head of hair and makeup, and I loved that, every one of them. But there is a the, the very it, the the stereotype of the American dwelling on everything and everyone talking about their trauma and you know feelings and everything. The Brits are everything to me. Seemed like get on with it, you know, like like someone could be have the flu and and be uh, you know had their legs shot off and would come to work and be like everything's fine you know like like no one wants to hear about your problems yeah. because get on that, with it that's the british thing i don't know whether that's healthy or not i mean i did a story. well that's what i was going to ask you is can well, you ever really get over anything if you're always you know getting on with it well i think it's just it's just indoctrinated into us and it's part of our makeup and obviously that sounds hugely sort of a sweeping statement for a country of 59 million people um but yeah i think we just kind of get on with it you know sometimes you beat yourself up sometimes you're so how do you deal with issues how do you how do you like how would a brit and this is general but how would a brit kind of look inside and say no i'm not going to get on with it i'm going to explore this so i don't have to it doesn't follow me around for the rest of my life i don't really know i think we just shrug our shoulders and dust it off I think you do. I don't think we're very good at (laughs) analyzing our. We're not good at analyzing our own trauma. So you don't go to. No one goes to psychotherapy. Oh, I'm sure they do, but nobody talk about it. I mean, I think you're much more sharing, aren't you? Like that. So you, you, you know, you might be with loads of friends and talk about your experience with your shrink. Trauma. Trauma is the most common word now. And by the way. I think a lot of people, most people probably do have some sort of trauma, right? Yeah. The world's kind of a fucked up place. Yeah. And so I, I'm not like saying it's, you know, I'm making fun of it right now, but definitely um, the conversation about trauma and that in the last, I even think five years has totally um, uh, come, come to a head in this country and people are discussing it more than ever. Do you know, you know what whatever their do? personal thing is especially the last four days, if we need to pick ourselves up, we watched a little excerpt of the Queen with Paddington having a tea party and marmalade sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) That makes us our hearts melt and everything's all okay in the world. And then just go to the pub. And then we go to the pub and drink a few beers. 
and get a bit leery. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, I've had utter traumas. I mean, I did a thing. It's Mental Health Week, wasn't it? Three weeks ago, and I did a a really frivolous. Well, not frivolous. I did a reel, and there was no objective behind it. You know, the reel that I posted, but it was really extraordinary how it resonated and resonated with lots of my British followers as well. Uh, and saying it's really brave of you to talk about this, about mental health and anxiety and depression. And and I didn't do it with expecting any response. In ca- Actually, weirdly, I thought more than anything, I'd probably get absolutely hammered for doing it and being narcissistic. And um, people were unbelievably generous. And I didn't think I was being particularly brave. It just felt like the right thing to do. And I wasn't ashamed that I suffer from anxiety, not all the time, or depression, and I beat myself up. and. You know, but we all have shit days, don't we? We all have, as you say, we're all dealing with our own shit. I think exactly. It's just quite good at covering it up and pretending everything's fine. Have another cup of tea, another... darling, and shut up. Exactly. <laughs> another thing about my British clients, I've been fortunate enough to work with quite a few British actresses. Um, you, you, you constantly, and this is my own interpretation, have to apologize for success. Whereas like mm-hmm. an American would be like, I worked for this. I did this. What a great thing. With exception, I can think of Brits, you know, who are definitely not like that. But, um, you know, the British actress is always like, you know, downplaying or t- poking fun at themselves as to not be too big for their britches. Right. Do you yeah. have to do that? You have this amazing big job at Pharaoh and Ball. Do you feel like you constantly have to apologize for yourself? No, but I just kind of I, I do my job, and but that's it. I don't need congratulate yet. Sometimes you kind of think you wish somebody at head office would acknowledge what you've done, <laughs> but you know, but that's fine. That's my problem. Um, but no, I mean, you just kind of you just do your job and get on with it. it it's not about praise. It's not about I work really hard to get here, and we're we're really good at we're really good at underplaying ourselves. I don't know whether it's a it's a false modesty or whatever it's quite interesting i was talking to some french friends the other day and because there's this kind of classic sort of thousand year old kind of thing with the french and the british we love the french we love living in france we love buying homes in france and um but we we take the piss out of each other ruthlessly and i was talking to friends and they're saying we all think you're really arrogant and actually the french aren't arrogant actually they're just they take a long time to warm up they're quite formal and then we have, they think we're really arrogant because we have this false modesty and we think we're better than everybody else. We just don't really talk about it. So it's really interesting people's perceptions. I think we always underplay our own achievements and we don't like it if people get too big for their boots. So we're not good mm-hmm. at celebrating success over here because it's like, oh, you're getting above your station. Now calm down. Calm down. So, you know. Then there are like the Joan Collins, you know the Charlotte Tilburys of the world that yeah. are like, I'm fabulous and look at my, my life and yeah. I I'm doing it all. Yeah. But that's Which not, we love norm. too. Which we right. kind of love, but it's not us. It's kind of like, Oh my God, go get you. Um, good for you. But then, yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? But then we, you know, we're really horrible. You know, when the whole Chris Martin, Gwyneth Paltrow split up and they did that conscious uncoupling. I mean, everybody was sick in their mouths in England. Because we, oh, just, I'm, oh, yeah, the, they hate all the that shit. That? 
get a life. <laughs> Sue <laughs> each other. Go after the estate and get on with it. Just get on with it. We don't need to hear about it. Just fucking get on with it. I mean, it's hilarious. It was so funny. That, yeah. I mean, but that's also an extreme here. I think that, you know, that's like living in West LA and like having, you know, um, you know, that certain lifestyle. I, yeah. I, the average American probably hates their ex. Yeah. And that's the way it should be, you know? Yeah. Um, how is the company like Pharaoh and Ball that is so quintessentially British? Um, but now, you know, you have showrooms, like you said, in LA, you have showrooms, I think, all over the world. Um, and mainly you've been me- acquired by a larger company, which yeah. means always that you're expanding. How do you keep what everybody loves about the company without trying to please everyone and then becoming... Nothing. I think I think it's really interesting. So, I mean, I think pe- when people come to our head office down in Dorset, which is a manufacturing site, everything is there. People are gobsmacked because I think some people now probably see us as this kind of huge beer moth because we have, for a tiny company, we have quite a big global punch. Um, and they're just amazed. You know, we have a few units on this tiny industrial estate outside of a really beautiful sort of, quintessential English market town of Wimborne. Um, and that's where everything is still made and everybody kind of works apart from in our showrooms. So it, I don't know. I, I don't think we have really, really checked. Yes, we've got bigger, but I think the essence of who we always have been is very much part of our DNA. Were you afraid when they when you found out the company was selling that you would lose a part of, of your uh, no, not really, and I might get told off for this, and I don't know if I will. We were owned uh, by private equity, and I'm, I'm I'm always slightly uncomfortable with private equity because I always think they have an agenda, uh, which is also to make the owners super rich, and I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Yeah, I don't know where you got that from. I don't know. It's really weird. Maybe it's just a vicious <laughs> rumor. But um, yeah. it's kind of, you know, I think that kind of level of, Business. I'm not saying it's a case for us, but I mean, it always makes me because I think creativity can be sucked out of a business when it's purely profit, commercial driven. And obviously, you know, we've got to be commercial. Of course, you've got to be commercial. But actually, I think it's really interesting. Our new owners, um, and they are a paintings, you know, a, a coatings manufacturer. So there's a much more symbiosis, and I think I think it's really exciting. You know, it's actually a charitable trust. Got, um, Right, like you didn't sell you didn't sell to British Petroleum, like it makes sense. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, and I think the Danish ethos is really interesting. Um, they do lots of really great philanthropic work, so I think that's really lovely to have um, as part of your kind of you know the hierarchy. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of good being done by our owners, which you know, fantastic. You know, in communities, education programs, and stuff like that you know, in more disadvantaged communities, which is really exciting. Really, it's lovely to be part of that. In terms of just like technically in color, like your colors are rooted in the UK, which has, you know, a certain light, a certain gloom even. And you have a lot of really amazing gloom. gloom. You guys have these amazing mid-tone, muddy, kind of moody, mercurial colors. Yeah. When you go to LA and you're at, a house that's just like baking in Southern light. Yeah. Do you find that you have to change up the palette and, or your mind to be able to, 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 to make it successful? Well, it's kind of weird. Cause I think probably the perception would be yes, 
but you know, and we our sort of fleet of showrooms in California are hugely successful. I mean, we've got one in Berkeley, we've got Pasadena, we've got Orange County, we've got West Hollywood, uh, we've got Santa Monica, and um, they all do really well. So clearly, they work in that environment. And then obviously, we launched the California collection last year with Kelly Wurstler which you know very much geared towards that kind of different lighting environment and aesthetic so um and and also when you put the archive chart into the mix you know actually our palette is quite generous there is probably enough meat there for most environments and most aesthetics you don't feel limited by the edit no Mm -hmm. god no not at all no i really don't actually do you have to put a different thinking cap on though when you're in different environments? Yeah, geographical environments. Yeah, I mean it, we have kind of a cool sort of blue and light, and obviously we have those long flat winters, flat light winters. So colors definitely respond differently here than they will in kind of you know the Côte d'Azur or somewhere or in sort of Marrakesh. Um, but that's fine. You you just you just play you know to the environment you know. And, coastal versus inland and stuff like that you know the exterior environment you know if you're in in upstate new york surrounded by trees you'll get that reflection coming in obviously if you're in maine on the coast and get that lovely sort of clean light you know so they'll all they'll all have different response but um you know of course we have to take that into consideration and that's why you're a professional um yeah, I'm, I think I've just been faking it for the last thirty years. But yes, yes, it's very oh, nice yeah. of you to call. Do you have? That. Do you ever have imposter syndrome? Um, yeah, I, yes, I do sometimes. I do, and that's my own insecurity. Um, and I think when I first started working in kind of more with the interior decorating world here in London, I very much felt like an outsider. Not an outsider. I've, I felt very. I think I doubted my own ability a lot. Um. And I thought, do you know what? I'm quite good at what I do, and I do have right. quite a good breadth of knowledge. But you know, sometimes you're with people who are just have the most extraordinary knowledge, and and also, I don't think I'm very good at articulating myself. I can talk forever, but I'm not. I, sometimes I think I, I struggle to articulate a point, and um, and then you meet these really beautifully articulate, literate people. And, and does that make you feel like fuck? I'm never going to be like that. I, yeah, I just feel like stupid sally you know it's kind of right oh fuck that's really depressing but no i mean i hold my own most of the time i really do it's just sometimes you know and again that that can kind of be your own emotional state you just start doubting you know i mean coming on with you today i was really nervous you were yeah oh well i have that effect on people um don't you think that doubt is an is a key ingredient to 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 art Oh, it, no, it really is. I mean, God, I mean, Quinn, you'd be really gobsmacked. I mean, six, five, six years ago, I never used to do public speaking. And I had to go and do a presentation to loads of people in either Stockholm or St. Petersburg. And I was absolutely dreading it. And then I just got up. You know, it's completely not my comfort zone. And I just got up. I stood there. I kind of done this really nice Sounds really boring, but quite nice PowerPoint, you know, lots of really lovely images. And I just kind of talked through it and it went really well. I did. I sweated up. I literally, I needed you there with a sponge pad uh, to dry me off. Um, But it was kind of, yeah, I mean, and it was fine. And then since then, I was like, oh God, I can do that. So I kind of think there's really 
horrible moments that fill you with dread and possibly a bit of self-doubt are really good ones to build up your confidence pushing yourself to be uncomfortable is is keep pushing to be uncomfortable right it's kind of quite good isn't it it's kind of i'm always a little bit jealous of the it's a kind of mental illness but you know the people who do what you might do and and they have none of that they're never any good because that they don't have the doubt that makes them question their their decision so like they're always bad at what they do but they've got that hubris you know that just is never failing and i'm like fuck i just if i had that i mean who knows what i could do yeah you become a politician you become a congressman Yeah. Or Madonna, you know, oh, Madonna. where you're just like insatiable for fame and it doesn't matter what you put out anymore. Just keep putting it out. Yeah. You know, but she's got seven homes in a private chat and here I am, you know, chatting with you. So well, who knows not, who's you're better You're not living off. with your mother. That's one thing. <laughs> <laughs> 54. Seriously. You could you get more baby Jane? <laughs> Mamone. Um, final question. Yeah. If you could go back in time and meet yourself anywhere, mm. where would it be and what would you say? Um, I would probably get back to I think the time I it's probably when I was kind of coming out and kind of understanding about my own sexuality. And I I I have made some enormous fuck ups in my life, you know not necessarily career things, just I've just made some really dis- bad decisions occasionally. Um, I think I just go back and actually tell my 20-year-old 20, 20 self that everything's going to be okay, because it has been. There's been huge traumas en route. I'm, I probably should have gone back to the 18th century and said, oh, that frock coat looks shit on you. Um, but no, hmm. I think it's just going back, you know, literally to when I was kind of going... <gasps> I don't know where my life is and I don't know what I want to do and I don't know who I am. Just to say, do you know what? It's okay. It's actually okay. And people are kinder than you think. Mm. I've met some, I've been really lucky. I've met really lovely people. And I know I've been really lucky and blessed because my sexuality has never been a problem for anybody. I've ex- I experienced a really horrible you know, situation in London. I got beaten up coming out oh, of a God. club in Brixton. But, you know, that, again, it makes you stronger. Uh, but that's kind of it. That's the only negative. Did you have PTSD from that? No. Oh. No. I got myself up. I brushed myself off and I had a cup of tea in true British fashion. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most British thing I've ever heard <laughs> said by anybody. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> got my ass kicked. I got up and I had some tea. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> with the finest china. Yeah. What is your favorite tea, tea, by the way? Oh, well, actually, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Earl Grey. I really love Earl Grey mm-hmm. with nothing in it, no lemon, nothing. But um, we are growing. So we have really nice, huge pot of Moroccan mint here. And we also have a huge pot of lemon verbena. And actually, the blend of the lemon verbena and the mint with just boiling water on is just really floating my boat this summer. It's oh, that really sounds clean. nice. It's really lovely. I, I'm not good with dry herb teas. I, you know, the mint has to be fresh. So, um, Is iced tea, like, unheard of there? Um, what do you do in ice? Is iced tea just kind of what we call builder's tea, normal kind of dajiling with ice? No, it's, it's just like tea cold over ice. 
Right, okay. Um, yeah. No, we don't really have it. No, we don't do that. No, it's very I, don't see why not, I feel like it's, it's very Southern American. Yeah, it's very it's, Southern it's American, really isn't it? But yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, really clean and lovely. But um, I, yeah, I, I, li- I mean, I still have, if I'm having builder's tea, Darjeeling, um, I have a dash of milk in it. Um, but yeah. And what's the, what brand would you say is like the best? Oh, well, we drink for our everyday tea bags. We have tea bags rather than leaf. Um, we ha- I use a brand called Clipper. Oh. Organic Clipper. And it's really nice. Um, you know, the tea bags are, they're kind of natural. They're unbleached and everything. I don't know if that's the thing. That's probably me just, cause I'm a real sucker for anybody. Going, and the tea bags are natural. We don't bleach them. And I'm like, oh, God, that's really amazing. I, I, don't even know what that means, but I go, oh, that's really great. Um, or I buy um, leaf tea from the Rare Tea Company, um, and they do re- they do the most beautiful silver tip, and their jasmine tea is to die for. Oh, yeah. And what about Fortnum Mason? That's what we've been. Oh ordering. no, so yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Um, it is really good, but I tend not to do Fortnums because I also think it's for tourists. <laughs> so that's just me being. A okay, snob. there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's That's like for Amer- Americans who want to feel like we're having the real deal tea. And then, you know, we, we, we overpay and get touristy. Got it. Um, <laughs> rapid fire, rapid fire, quick game. Yeah. Um, what's the coolest place work has ever taken you to? Um, this is really boring. I'm probably going to say Milan because it's a city I'd been to and never really fell in love with it. And then I went with work and I didn't, I kind of, yeah, still didn't like it. And then I've been back a few times since. And actually Milan is a little like London, actually. It's one of those cities you discover on foot. Oh. And it just opens up loads of beautiful secrets and loads of charm. You know, it's not naturally the most beautiful city in Italy, but there is this incredible energy. I love Milan. I've I just started to fall in love with it. I think it's a really wonderful, wonderful city. I've always been told, I've been all over Italy, really, and I've been told to avoid Milan. I'm like, I've never been, not even for Fashion Week or well, anything. So and, uh, which, I want to check it weird. out. It, I, it's really, it's a city that gives in, gentle ways but it keeps on giving and i think london's like that everybody talks about you know paris is really beautiful but you know london got bombed quite heavily as well and also we had a parliament that didn't let the king build outrageous building projects and um but london's one of those secrets that gives up you know cities that gives up lots of secrets on foot you know it's it's a really it's not as obviously beautiful as a lot of european cities but it has this extraordinary sort of evolving beauty i i love i'm I, I love london it's my favorite city in the world really i love yeah. to hear that and do you live in london though no not anymore i used to i okay. lived there for a long time um I, I i just find it really exciting it's really vibrant it's I love really london. mixed there are lots of really you know it caters for everybody and everything i mean it's like new york it's just one of, i think new york and london are kind of the two really really mega fuck off global cities aren't they yeah they just... speaking of london what is what it where where is the best place in london for color inspiration um mm, there's loads of really hidden stuff um there's an amazing house in um kensington uh, which is kind of really interesting i always love the sir john Soane museum 
Are you talking about just seeing color in situ and stuff? I'm talking whatever it means to you. I'm not oh, going to over-explain like the question, the, okay, there's, Patrick. There's the goldfinch. All right, you're so bossy. Um, there's, <laughs> there's the um, goldfinger house in Hampstead, which is really beautiful. Um, and then I always love the Marnie shop on Sloan Street. I always oh. get, get really excited there. It's really, I just see color everywhere. So, you know, that, sorry, that sounds really cliched, but I... I, I I'm very I respond visually to everything. Um, yeah. So it can just be a busy street with the eclectic blend that you get on the street in London and stuff like that. It's Helen of Duval Kitchens went to one street in East London that had all these different colored houses and then oh, different color of the bars with the oh it was that's where I want to go next time I visit. Right. It looked amazing. Yeah, you got um, these amazing Huguenot houses. Um, like Fournier Street, which is really photographed, and they're really beautiful. But the, Chelsea and Notting Hill have streets and streets. Oh, right. Amazing colored workers' cottages. Well, they're not, well, they were workers' cottages. They're now like six million. Now they're homes. hedge fund homes yeah, for yeah. 19 million pounds. Yeah. All oh, right, until they've been seized by the government. Yeah. Um, favorite city in America? Um, I think it's probably New York. I think it's definitely New York. But again, I'm learning to love LA a bit more. I I could, mm. didn't get LA for ages because it feels really disparate, doesn't it? It's just a jumble of stuff, and there's no real heart. And I think the more I go there, the more I kind of get it. I mean, I'll never. The Brits really love LA. I will never. I think they like the LA more than New York. Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. There are loads. Of yeah, there's a lot of expats in 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 um. Because I think it's 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 like if they're not going to live in London, they want to live somewhere totally different. New York right. just feels like in betweeny, you know. Right. Okay. But like London, they in LA they can have a pool and go to the beach, and it's just totally different. But for Southern charm, I I I love Charleston. Oh, I think Charleston's really it's, heavenly. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite period of decoration? Favorite era? Um, now. Oh. Yeah. Only because I think there's so many people doing really beautiful things and reinterpreting stuff. I think it's a really exciting time for interior decoration at at this very moment in time. The last two or three years, I think there's people doing really extraordinary things. I mean, you've got the wonderful Rose Tarlow in L.A. Um, I'm just trying to think now. Completely, completely gone out of my mind. There's this couple um, in... I think they're in Nashville, uh, but they're also based in LA. This um, female couple, um, Pearson Ward, Pearson Ward, heaven. Yeah, doing I love really, them. Gr- really, really great stuff. Um, and then over here, you've got Beata Human, who I think is probably the most exciting designer around at the moment. Just in terms of creativity, she's just really mixing it up, and it's such a personal, individual language. And then. I still love what Sybil Colfax and John Fowler are doing. And then you've got Salves and Graham, Ben Pentreath. I think it's a really exciting time with designers at the moment. If I chose a particular time, I I, I mean, I, I love all those sort of um, late 18th century sort of Adams interiors because you know, the paintwork was so exquisite. But you could never live like that. Uh, you know, I think, you know, from a design point of view, for me, you know, I'm not 
wealthy or anything. So ever, anything on a domestic scale, but I just think design is really, really exciting at this moment. That's a great answer. I thought you were going to be like Edwardian. No. Um, favorite restaurant in London? The River Cafe in Hammersmith. Okay. I've it's, been there. It's the best Italian. Well, it's a, it, there are probably other, there are great Italians in London. It's been going forever. It's Ruthie Rogers, who was Sir Richard Rogers' wife, uh, with a, a woman who sadly passed called Rose Gray. And they set up this restaurant and it, it's the purity of the food. I mean, a lot of the food, she's probably not great for mileage, is flown in from Italy. Mm. It's got its three ingredients on a plate cooked to perfection. Oh, yeah. It's exquisite. It's just exquisite. And then in summer, if you're lucky enough, there's a lovely terrace on the Thames, um, which is always nice to sit down. I have, I have my 50th birthday party there. It's probably hard to get into, right? It's pretty hard to get into unless you lie. I actually, a friend of mine, Catherine, who was a really powerful lawyer at the time, she was taking um, a Formula One driver at David Coulthard. She tried it. She goes, I couldn't get into the River Cafe. And I picked up the phone, my phone, and I pretended to be my sister, who at the time used to work for Condé Nast. I said, hi, it's Alex O'Donnell from um, Traveller um, here. If you've got a table, I've got a friend, a client over from the States tonight. And they went, yes, of course we have, Alex. So that's the kind of thing when you've got an ambiguous oh. name. So I, so my Sneaky. Catherine. Was, I know. I used to do that all the time. It's very handy. I'm going to use your name. Can I just call and say I'm Patrick O'Donnell from Nope, so who the fuck are like you? A- <laughs> You're that really vacuous person on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what is a color trend that needs to be terminated immediately without pay? Oh, actually, I don't think so. Now we've kind of moved on from gray. I don't think we need to really be panicking about anything. I think it's all okay. I'm going to say one. Why are you what? Pink. Are you? That's really I fucking mean. hate pink. I would never use pink and it's so overdone. I'm just like really over but it. Even setting plaster. I don't consider that pink, and that is a whole nother show. I, I consider I consider setting plaster more of a peachy, yeah, it's peachy, peachy brown, but pink, it will fall into and it's knocked back enough. It's pink. not okay. Yeah, pink. That's the other tricky thing you guys do. It'll clearly be to the average human's eye like a blue, and you'll be like, you know, um, you'll be like mid Midlands green, and you're like. Oh, that's really something <laughs> we do else. Do yeah, we do You're do just that. fucking with us. Yeah. yeah. It's like light blue, which is one of my favorite colors, is hilarious because it, it can look green. It can look slightly sort of grayish blue. Uh, it's like, it's, it's really not light blue. Exactly. <laughs> I know. What is your least favorite color? In general or Farron Ball? But, oh, I feel say Farron Ball. In general oh. and Farron Ball. Oh, least favorite color at Farron Ball is Kaluna. Um, what is that? It's like a really sort of pale grayish lilac. I find it really clean and cold and horrible. Ooh. Yeah. It's, Does it look good with browns? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I've never tried. Probably. I don't care. I hate it. Um, you hate lilac. Okay. Yeah, I do. I'm not good with purple full stop, actually. Um, but yeah, probably actually purple might least favorite color of all time i just find it absolutely problematic to use what about brinjal that's not purple though is it i wouldn't say that's purple that's not purple in my head that's more kind of a rich border red right yeah okay that's my Copy story that. i'm sticking to it okay what's your favorite cocktail 
Oh, actually, this is, it's kind of a whiskey. Well, it's a toss-up. If I'm in the States, it's a whiskey sour. Okay. If I'm in in Europe or at home, it's Negroni. Okay. That's the one thing that I think the Americans do better than anybody in the planet is cocktails. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. Okay, so the Brit British food is having a resurgence, and some of the names are just like really funny. But do you do you prefer Toad in the Hole or Bangers and Mash? Both. Okay. Both. So Bangers and Mash is a really they're both comfort foods, but Bangers and Mash, an onion gravy and a big side of lovely kind of greens, you know, sort of Cabello Nero is to die for but the it's really important the sausages have to be really good they have to be coarse so more european and start in cut and they have to yeah cook coarse and good quality and free range i'm the one thing i will spend money on is organic and free range totally with meat um and i know that isn't available to everybody but actually i'd rather go vegetarian for three weeks to be able to buy a really beautiful organic chicken uh, yeah, on, uh, one weekend. Yeah, you know, I'd rather forfeit meat and have really good meat as and when. Well, I think vegetarian here can be more expensive than meat. It, well, it can be here, know. especially if you go shopping at Ottolenghi. <laughs> no. Um, okay. Uh, jam roly poly or Knickerbocker glory? Uh, I haven't had a jam roly poly for ages, and now you make me. It's, it's gone really cloudy here, and I think, oh, jam roly poly and custard. What is jam roly poly? It's a steamed pudget pudding, so like a suet mm-hmm. pudding with jam through it, I and mean, it's nothing complicated. It's like a you know like a Swiss roll but steamed hot. Okay, and what what's a Knickerbocker Glory? Knickerbocker Glory is it's I think it's ice cream and kind of yeah. raspberries and cream. I don't think I've ever had one. Doesn't it have to show like the pink and white in some color? Probably it's probably like the pudding equivalent of snow wash jeans. I still never had banoffee pie. Oh, banoffee pie is good, but sticky toffee pudding is the best. Okay. Lastly, I came up with some names that um, I'm willing to give away for free if <laughs> Farron Ball decides that they want to use them for future colors. And if you know, I'm just going to run them by. You can tell me yeah. yay or nay, and if you what you might think they would go with. One is called jaundice. It's a beautiful neutral. Yeah, it's 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 a bit too yellow, and it's going to okay. make me look a bit pallid. Okay, what about tarmac? Um, well, you're not far off Kelly Worcester. She did tar, didn't she? <laughs> so okay, it's just a shortened version. How about liver? Um, have you been watching Victoria Wood, by the way? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, the next one is uh, bladder. What color uh, would that be? I don't know. Would it be slightly puce? <laughs> How about Carol's black? That's kind of cute because I know where that's coming from. So that's and she's she's thing. half golden retriever. She has this beautiful oh, red undertone that in the sun it looks red black. It's, right, okay. it's actually quite beautiful. So my name Quinn in Spanish is Queen. So I thought, it's, what it's, what color could it be for Queen? Uh. We're not going with pink. I'm going to take our monarch into a, <laughs> a really nice kind of cerulean blue. Oh, I'll take that. It what about Boris Johnson? 
Um, Boris Johnson. That goes back to your first one, jaundice. (laughs) (laughs) What about my new favorite term, growler? No, you can't say that, Kathy. (laughs) Nobody here knows what it means. Oh, don't they? It's fine. I learned that on the film set last year. It's the best. Oh, did you? Oh, no, Um, because we had a really interesting thing with a politician. A slightly Sharon Stone moment with a female politician. Oh, uh, and then, Growler's Pink. How about that? Growler's Pink. Well, <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. And finally, what about Patty's Cakes? Patty's Cakes. Uh-huh. Um, what would that be? A good... Um, what do I like making? I love making um, clementine and polenta cake. So it'd be slightly sort of earthy orange, slightly burned orange. Okay. Yeah. Polenta semolina, earthy, burnt, yeah. knocked back orange yeah. with a little bit of trauma and a little bit of get on with it. It's yeah, going to be a hot seller at the at the shop. But no guilt. We don't no guilt. No. Calorie free. Patrick, um, I was actually nervous about interviewing you because I respect what you do so much. You're out of my normal kind of um, – wheelhouse of of guests and i wanted to impress you and also you know i didn't want to overstep or have you know the brit it's a different culture different thing and i just wanted to like make sure it went okay and i have to say like um i find you so easy to talk to and interesting and um i can see why you are so successful and are where you are today it depends how you measure success (laughs) but I'm, i'm comfortable in my own skin that's that's my measure of success. I mean, is there anything more successful than that? I don't think there is anything more successful than that. No. No. And I don't live in that space all the time, comfortable in my own skin, only when challenged. But okay. in, if I'm left to my own devices, I'm, I'll beat myself up, you know? We all do that. We all do that. Yeah. Get a good book. Um, a hot cup of tea. You need a, good, a pot of Darjeeling and a good book. But in Nancy Mitford, that puts the world to rights. Okay. I'm going to go whoop somebody's ass and then have a cup of tea. I'll okay. Be on the, on the other end of that. Thank you thank so much. You. And um, thank you. I hope really we get flattered. to keep in touch. I'm really flattered, but thank you for asking me to join you. Um, all right. Well, have a good one. And you take care. Take care. Be lovely. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.